Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. We are so happy to be back with you here at The Advertising Show. It's another encore show this weekend for you. David Ocker is a brand specialist, and he was with us uh, just about a year ago or so, and a great interview then. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it uh, right now, as a matter of fact, here on The Advertising Show. All about branding. David's great at that stuff. The Advertising Show is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production powered by a platform called Tendency. And where do you find that? At Schiphol.com. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. They've been supporters of the advertising show for quite a long time since our inception. And we certainly do appreciate their help. But check it out for your uh, your business and or uh, a personal website. It's great. Schiphol.com. S-C-H-I-P-U-L. Are you ready for some David Ocker and some good advice on branding? Well, let's do it. David, a sincere pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your week to to join us here at the Advertising Show. My pleasure. Yeah, you know, before we jump into your book, which uh, was an interesting read, and we'll talk the uh, majority of our time about your book, uh, I wanted to get your take on uh, Steve Jobs' health issues. They've certainly been in the news again recently. The media seems to enjoy speculating on the impact of Steve Jobs' absence, uh, should that happen uh, with Apple on a permanent basis. I'm curious, David, can Apple actually survive or even thrive uh, without a Steve Jobs permanently there? At well, the I, in my opinion, Steve Jobs is, is, is one of the top two or three greatest CEOs of our generation. And it's... Uh, uh, it, and you just don't replace a guy like that. It's just, just uh, it's going to be really devastating for them. I think they can operationally keep the momentum going on what they have, which is, which is a good thing. But as far as uh, you know, in, in my terminology, the the way to disturb market is to create new categories or subcategories. He's done it six times in ten years, and, and there's nobody on earth that that has that kind of record in. And he's not going to be replaceable. So that's not a, a financial t- stock tip. That's just your opinion. I just want to disclaim that if I could. You know, in your book, you attribute the market successes and failures of recent years to brand relevance. Perhaps we should begin uh, the interview today, David, with uh, giving us a definition of brand relevance, if you would. Well, you need to con- I contrast what I call uh, brand preference competition with brand relevance competition. Brand preference competition is where you have an established category and you're do you're trying to make people believe believe that my brand is better than your brand. So you engage in incremental communication, you engage in very aggressive a- uh, advertising, and so on to do that, and you win if your brand is preferred, and and that's. And what the astonishing fact is that just doesn't work very much. It doesn't change anything. The alternative is what I call brand relevance competition, where you try to create new categories or subcategories so that you win when competitors are simply not relevant. They're not considered because they don't have whatever is in that new subcategory. And, uh, and, and that's the, the people that can pull that off have enormous wins. And as I said, Apple's done it. Six times. I was just reading in today's uh, 
paper about uh, Duncan Hines that uh, they're taking their cake mix in a different direction. They're taking their decadently chocolate cake mix and and uh, and putting out recipes that will be for people that really like to cook, not not for necessarily mothers for their kids, which is a traditional market, but wow. for singles and for men and for just people that love to bake. And that's that's you know, I, a, a, an example of creating a new subcategory. You know, I hear you, and I understand uh, what you're saying there, and I guess creating a new subcategory certainly is a way of limiting your competition because you're creating a category, I'm assuming, that uh, is a new category that there are not existing players in. Is that correct? Am I... That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're saying, and I can envision a lot of brand managers that listen to our show uh, asking, scratching their head right now. You're saying really? it's a mistake for brand managers to focus their attention on getting customers to choose their product over their competitors. Is that correct? Oh, I no, no. I what I'm saying is that we spend too much uh, resources on brand preference competition and too little on brand relevance competition. And at the margin, I think firms ought to shift resources toward more substantial innovation and transformational innovation and shift uh, resources away from incremental. But this is at the margin. Uh, You certainly have to still engage in brand preference competition as well. I see. So uh, back to creating a new product uh, in a category all by itself, which certainly... Sounds like a winning strategy, but yet uh, a, a major challenge, I would think, to accomplish. Can you give us some insights, David, as to how one might go about this? Well, it, it starts with the, um, you know, getting an idea, and the key part is to evaluate that idea. It's easy to be too optimistic, and it's easy to be too pessimistic, and, and you don't want to do either one. You really want to find an idea that will have a substantial audience, that uh, the company can deliver on and one that you can build barriers for competition so that it'll have legs over time. Um, and, uh, and so it is, it is uh, not easy. If it was easy, then it would be more prevalent. But uh, if you look at any category and you look at major uh, changes in, in the position of players, it's always, it always has been the result of of people forming new categories or subcategories, almost never because they were successful at my brand is better than your brand competition. Brands yeah, are too you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Excuse me. Yeah, well, the market position of a of a company is companies are just too stable. I did a study of the Japanese beer market for over uh, 50 years, and over 50 years, the market share trajectory has only changed four times. Three times there were new subcategories formed, and the fourth subcategories were repositioned and during that time untold hundreds of millions were spent on on new products and advertising and so on and they had no impact at all well as we wrap up this segment one final question uh when you talk about verifying market potential on a new category a new product etc i mean we're obviously we're talking about consumer research market research is there any non-traditional, innovative ways that your company goes about verifying these uh, potentials? Well, that's a really good question. But Steve Jobs is, is famous for not ever conducting any customer research, at least in the, in the sense that you and I know it. Um, he just uses his uh, intimate knowledge of the market and the technology and his instincts. 
And uh, Henry Ford famously said if, if they asked customers, they'd say they want a faster horse. So the trouble with these, these substantial and, and transformational innovation, it's, a, it's harder to get good customer feedback about it. But uh, having said that, you certainly, uh, you certainly uh, try to test the waters and you try to do market tests and, and then refine ideas. So, um, but it, it's not as straightforward as, uh, as you might think. Or as it once must have been as well. Yeah. Uh, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth here on the Advertising Show out of the uh, San Francisco area. David Ocker, who is Vice Chairman of Profit, Profit.com, also uh, Brand Relevance. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, that and a little bit more here as we continue with the Advertising Show. Being powered by Shippel.com, it's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. The platforms are incredible marketing platforms for business. Check it out at Shippel.com. We thank uh, Ed and his team for powering uh, the advertising show for all these years as well. Ray and Brad on the advertising show. We'll continue here in just a moment. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Rain Brad, back with you on the advertising show with our special guest out of the San Francisco area, uh, David Ocker, vice chairman of Profit. David, I have a question for you. Can you give us a, an example of possibly a company that is doing a great job, an exceptional job as it relates uh, to brand relevance? And possibly on the flip side, can you give us an uh, idea of one you feel that could be doing a lot better job? Well, there's a, there's a whole, there's, uh, I've studied hundreds of examples of companies that have been able to pull this off, and in every, any category you can find um, a host of them. You know, take automobiles. You had the Chrysler minivan in 1982 that went 16 years with no competition, yeah. none at all. Um, and you have Enterprise run a car that went 35 years with no competition. You have ESPN and CNN that went 10 years with no competition. Uh, you know, Dell Computer had a new way to deliver computers. Uh, um, Salesforce.com introduced cloud computing. Um, you have IKEA, you have uh, Zara uh, in the in Whole Foods in the retailing sector, and all these firms found a way to create a some kind of a must-have that defined the new subcategory, and then found ways to um, to to own it over time. Mm-hmm. But aren't we talking about uh, first mover advantage, as they call it, first to market? Yeah, and I, and I didn't answer the second half of your question, which was, you know, who well, has not done the, it well? The, uh, yeah. An example of somebody that has not done it well is Microsoft. You mentioned them at the outset. And uh, one of the reasons they have not done it well is it's the curse of success. They have these two huge, huge brands, Windows and Office. And they just soak up all the energy. And even though they've had this enormous R&D budget over the years, they've really almost uh, come out with, with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sony has been equally disappointed in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, and they have a lot of silo issues that prevent them from sort of getting their act together. And, and they also don't have a, a good sense of the, the market like Steve Jobs does. So, um, um, 
McDonald's struggled with uh, innovation for a long time, but the last uh, six or seven years, they have turned the corner and been able to uh, get some leadership in there that could do it, some marketing leadership and some technical leadership. Very good. So, uh, Oh, uh, David, thank you very much. And uh, Brad, you had a question as well, obviously. Yeah, I was just going to, you know, I want to go back to something you said last segment, David. You, you mentioned how Steve Jobs uh, is, a, is an individual that's known not to do research and trust his instincts. We've been fortunate, Ray and I, in being able to talk to a lot of uh, very important people with big companies, uh, not unlike yourself, David. And we learned from talking to an executive with Nike that Phil Knight is an example of an individual that knows his consumer and his brand be uh, because he, along with this particular brand manager uh, that we spoke to several years ago, mentioned how, in a lot of cases, the ad campaigns for Nike back in the day when they were very innovative and very out there by themselves were never tested, and had they been tested, many would have never gotten off the ground. So I, I think there's something to be said for the value of market research, but more so the value of understanding who your brand is and who your customer is. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you say frequently in your book and have mentioned several times today, and that is how innovation is critical to attaining brand relevance. When, when we think about boosting creativity within an organization, I immediately think of Google and how they encourage their, their uh, rank and file to allocate a certain number of hours per week to think about innovation within Google. But yet for most companies, I think it would be a daunting task to get their rank and file to come up with great ideas. How do you recommend to your client companies uh, within uh, your your organization, David, on how to make their company more innovative? Well, I think that companies have to uh, be three things, which is uh, organizationally, which are, are tough to to, to put under the same tent. One, they have to be committed to a concept. They have to be able to really do incremental innovation, get better and better, and and uh, and so forth. But at the same time, they have to be in entrepreneurial. They have to be able to uh, have an externally oriented information system, and they have to be able to uh, allow new ideas to emerge and then to uh, to run with them. And the third thing is they have to have a centralized resource allocation scheme because that's really the organizational killer that I see a lot. Um, a company, again, a company like uh, Microsoft, the uh, Windows and Office soaks up all the resources and soaks up the energy. So if you have a central resource allocation thing that says, okay, we're going to take a certain amount of our resources and we're going to invest in these new emergent areas and and you know, Windows and Office, you can't touch that. But it's not easy. I mean, uh, uh, I, uh, one company, I think it was GE, set up a, an office in, in Singapore someplace or Shanghai in order to protect that money from the big, uh, the big divisions. So, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, but it, 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 it's tough, but it can be done, and it is being done. Well, one final question this segment. Uh, you know, lots has been said and written about social media. We've discussed it over the years here on the advertising show uh, and how brands uh, are to use social influence uh, and feed that back to the 
leveraging of their brand. Talk a little bit, if you would, David, about how companies are using social media today to strengthen or even elevate their brands with consumers. Yeah, I've, I've started to blog davidocker.com about five months ago, and, and it's, it's really a fascinating world that's very complicated and, and fast-changing, so it's tough. But my view on social media is that it's a mistake to use it as a, to view it as a communication vehicle. Rather, you should use this as, a, as an integrating device, as a, something to augment your offering. So when Pampers is, becomes a, a baby care company instead of a, a, a diaper company, they, their website becomes a, a key role in, uh, in, you know, in that. And, and the other media actually uh, are subservient. They drive people to the, to the website. A lot of that, it's partially true with Harley Davidson as well, and uh, um, and and Dell, for example. Now Dell's got a uh, a really uh, good presence uh, in the in the internet, and it's basically used to uh, sort of to integrate everything else they're doing, and also to provide a basis of relationship. And I think that's that's the payoff, and not to view it as a communication device. Today's show all about brand relevance, and our special guest out of San Francisco is David Ocker, who is vice chairman of Profit. Profit.com is the website. We'll continue our conversation with Ray and Brad here in just a moment. Stay with us. The advertising show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth. So happy that you are here with us today uh, listening in. Our special guest out of the San Francisco area is uh, uh, has a regular column in the, uh, the AMA Marketing News, Ocker on Branding, it's called. And uh, many other publications as well, including Brand Relevance. David Ocker, welcome back to the show. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, and what a wonderful book. I recommend to all of our listeners to check this out. It's a, a wonderful read from our friends at Wiley Publishing. Uh, you got some heavyweight uh, praise on the back of the book from uh, Chief Marketing Officer from Coca-Cola, uh, P&G, Adobe, I don't know uh, how much money you're sending them or if Wiley's doing it, but what what the hell? you got some great uh <laughs> doesn't great matter, does it? There. No, it really doesn't, as long as you can get them to agree to it, assuming they know about that. No, anyway, uh, you know, you, you say just because an idea is new doesn't necessarily guarantee market success. I, I, I'm curious, other than the huge waste of R&D dollars as well as marketing funds, what are some of the risks? Uh, and misjudging the potential of a new product idea or concept? Well, one of them is timing. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs is given a lot of credit for having a vision, but, you know, the iPod was introduced two years before uh, Jobs by Sony, and the iPad was introduced ten years earlier by Gates, who he called it the tablet PC, and the iPhone was in Europe ten years before the iPhone came out. So uh, there was others that had the vision. But Steve Jobs had the timing, and he also had the ability to get it right, to uh, to kind of get the last two or three dimensions to fall into place. Um, so, uh, uh, so a lot of it is timing, and uh, a lot of it is. I think the most common reason why people miss is because they underestimate their ability to overcome technical and marketing hurdles, and something that. Uh, you know, appears formidable, can be overcome. You know, the Toyota gave the, the Prius uh, uh, design team three years to come out with a Prius, and there was enormous technical obstacles, but, but they overcome them, and they delivered in three years. Um, 
And, uh, you know, P&G gave up and tied five years before it emerged from some closet back in the, in the catacombs. And uh, uh, because they thought, well, synthetic dispersion is just not going to be able to be invented. So, um, uh, you know, Mint.com, the people said, well, nobody will ever give you financial information. Well, it turned out to be not true. So, um, you, you, you know, if, if somebody is really committed to an idea, they can overcome these kind of hurdles. And, and so, to some extent, you've got to have somebody that, that has faith, and you've got to have the CEO on board. You know, uh, you mentioned timing, and certainly it's easy with uh, hindsight to see companies such as Apple as you give those examples of iPad and the uh, iPhone and the iPod. And, and we're very familiar with the fact that there were others that preceded uh, that particular company with those products and unsuccessful. Yet we've had many design experts, product design, uh, world-class product design guests here on the show. And they emphasize how important design is. And I know you mentioned that it's also the product in addition to market timing. But some have argued that Apple's success was not so much timing, but it was product design because they're really out there and, and certainly leading the way when it comes to product design. How much does product design or can product design overcompensate for what might be uh, a bit early on market timing? Well, my research suggests that most uh, really great products, uh, uh, there's about seven or eight dimensions, and you need all of them. Um, if you're missing even one or two, it's not going to work. Um, and I learned that in studying the, the Saturn success of the 90s, that um, just everything has to come together. And if you're just missing anything, like the Segway, Segway had so many things going for it. It was a great design. They were able to manufacture it with uh, airlessly, and they had probably more publicity than any other inter- new product ever. And... Uh, and yet it failed because they were missing distribution. And so you, you just got to have everything. And so it's not a matter of saying that uh, it's, hard, it's hard to say at the end of the day how much percentage is due to any of those factors because if you omit any of them, you're, not gonna, you're, you're probably going to fail. So you've got to have them all. And uh, for some categories, certainly for jobs, uh, uh, design is one of those dimensions that was crucial to his success. Well, that's a great place to end it today. I'd like to thank you for being on the show. And, uh, Ray? Absolutely. David, a great book. We recommend you go uh, get that book, uh, Brand Relevance. Uh, you can also find out more, I would assume, David, if you look at uh, Profit.com. Is that correct? Yes, or my blog, DavidOcker.com. Very good. I invite you to participate in that as well. Interesting stuff, David. Keep it up. Uh, the uh, marketing and advertising community needs folks like you. Thank you so much. Well, I really think this brand relevance concept works. It, it explains so much of market dynamics. And a very special thanks to our guest today, David Ocker, on the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Happy to have you listening. Remember, the AdvertisingShow.com is chock full of great interviews and unique perspectives from this industry's top people. Check it out if you haven't already. The AdvertisingShow.com being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. You visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and we will talk to you soon.
Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications, and it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.